0: to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, good morning, everybody. We are, we're diving into Hebrews 12 here, and we're going to cover 18 through 24, where the Lord begins to make a contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and the difference in those two mountains, and the privilege we have to continue and to press on to Mount Zion, not to stay at Mount Sinai. And it's going to be a a really interesting message if you've never studied these two mountains in the Bible. So as we always should do before we open the word of God, let's, let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much again for your word, and we pray that, God, you would speak to us this morning. God, let all of us leave Sinai and make it to Zion, where we get your rest, Lord, and where you are the king over our lives and the ruler of the universe. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that you've placed all through your Bible, your word, God, that you would set your king on your holy mountain. And Lord, that Jesus will sit there someday and that we will rule and reign with him. And Lord, we thank you for your infallible word that is from everlasting to everlasting. And we praise your name. Teach us everything out of your word this morning from 1 John 2, 27. God, be our teacher and let your anointing lead us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to finish chapter 12 next Sunday, and then we'll just have one more chapter in Hebrews, chapter 13. And then, as I've been mentioning to all of you, we're going to spend probably probably about four weeks in prophecy. You know, where are we and why in the world today? What's going on in the modern headlines, and how does it overlay with the Bible? So I really, I really have a deep, deep passion to, to try to get everyone to see the world through the lens of what God's Word says is going to happen. And that's something that when you connect the entire council of God's Word, it's just incredible what's going on and, and how it relates to Bible prophecy today. So we're going to spend probably, like I said, maybe about a month going through that, maybe longer, we'll see. But in chapter 11, if you remember uh, when we were back there, like last April or something, it feels like it's been forever. <laughs> but, but in chapter 11, it was the, the Hall of Faith, and you remember all these great people in the Bible and the Lord laying them out on what they did and how they pressed on by faith. And in chapter 12, God connects what we are to do today to what all of, all of them did back thousands and thousands of years ago. And so we're, we are on a race, right? We are running toward King Jesus, and we've got to look to him as our example on how to be successful in that race. And so keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, like we mentioned last week, will help us to uproot any bitterness in our lives. And if you weren't here last week, please go back and listen to that message on uprooting bitterness and all about forgiveness in in our lives. So one thing that I wanted to mention about that message from last week, because I didn't mention it during the the service, but Randy and I were listening to some pastors talk and, and a guy was giving a message on forgiveness, actually, And he said something that was really profound to me. I don't remember who it was. But what he said was when we're unwilling to forgive someone, it's almost like we feel like we have to bear the weight and the burden of that individual's sin. And so meaning we won't let it pass on from us. We have to carry it. We have to bear that weight because surely Jesus can't bear that weight. We've got to ourselves. And so I thought that was a really profound observation that, when you're unwilling to forgive someone in your life, it is like you want it to stop with you and you want to carry it and bear it and, and walk around with it. When in reality, you've got to let it pass on and let Jesus bear that weight and let him take it. You forgive that individual and then let Jesus carry it on. So in any case, I wanted to mention that because I thought that was a really good example. Okay, let's start in verse 12 here. Where we, where we covered last week. We're just going to read the, five, the six verses that we covered last week in verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Remember, we talked about how Moses needed help holding his hands up in the war all the way back in Exodus, and when his hands dropped, they were losing the war, the Israelites in the valley, and when they were up, they were winning the war, but he needed people on each side of him to help lift up his hands. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame to be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently lest any man fall of the grace of God. Let any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And we spend a lot of time on bitterness and how it can take root in your life leading to your lack of willingness to forgive. Remember, unforgiveness is not a word. Um, I can't, I've can't. i got to try to stop using that. But remember, bitterness leads to that, or unforgiveness can lead to your bitterness. They kind of go, go together. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance. And remember that place of repentance he was looking for was on Isaac's part, not his. He was repentant, but the inheritance, the blessing was already passed on and Isaac couldn't do anything about it, though he sought it carefully with tears. Okay, so in verse 18, starting today, um, we're gonna pick up how the Lord's contrasting Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. And Sinai, if you're not familiar with it in the Bible, it's the place where the law was given, a place of fire, smoke, thundering, God's very presence, sitting on top of the mountain and wanting to speak to his people. Okay, remember he rains down in fire from heaven. The mountain is smoking. He's thundering with the sound of a trumpet, wanting to speak to his people. And he lays out all these details with Moses and the children of Israel on not letting any animal or person touch the mountain when he's there, lest they die. But he wanted to speak to all of his people. And Moses eventually goes up into the mountain for 40 days. He gets the Ten Commandments twice there. Remember, he gets them once on the tablets, walks down. He sees how Aaron and them have made the golden calf in that short time that he was gone. He drops the tablets, then goes back and gets more, gets them again. There's, there's a, Sinai has a, a significant place in the Word of God. It's a significant geographical location. In Saudi Arabia, if you've never heard of, I don't remember who produced it, but Prophecy Watchers here in Oklahoma City covered the film years ago. It's called uh, the I think it's called the Search for Sinai, if I remember right. But you can look it up on their website. It's a fascinating documentary where uh, they find, based on just the Word of God, they find what they believe to be the actual mountain in Saudi Arabia where the where the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea. And what was so fascinating to me is, around that mountain, they found troughs and kind of, kind of ditches dug with uh, Hebrew hieroglyphics, kind of all, or Hebrew writing, all in them. And there are places to chain up sacrifices and animals. So they must have stayed there for a while after they got the law. But it just, it's a fascinating film. And the other thing that's really cool about it is, the top of the mountain is charred black. It's completely black when you see it. It's not just like a little forest fire of you know of a bush or something burning. It's it is charred, literally like a pillar of fire from heaven just rained down on. That's exactly what you read in Exodus 19. But remember the children of Israel, they were terrified of God. There, remember they were they were utterly terrified of God at Sinai. Well, Zion is quite a different place. And ultimately, Zion will be a holy place where Jesus rules and reigns, but it did not start out that way. During the time period when Hebrews was written, if the Jews continued the temple sacrifices, they were essentially saying that they wanted to go back to Sinai. And that's the, that's the contradiction that God is building in these verses now. And meanwhile, the Lord is calling them to venture onward to Zion, the heavenly city of our God, and to rest with him. And what's amazing is that is the same call for all of us today, if you are in Christ, is to press on to Zion. That's, that's the key for all of us. Okay, so starting on verse 18 here. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. See, even in Hebrews, God is making a reference to all of the people of Israel that he spoke to. They begged Moses to never let it happen again. They did not want to hear from God, and we're going to cover that verse later because it's, it's critical how it applies to us today. And the sound of a trumpet. Now, the sound of a trumpet, if you're, if, if you're familiar with the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 5, That's interesting that God spoke to his people with the voice of a trumpet, a very loud trumpet, and it scared them. Really, his voice of a trumpet should be something that we are all looking forward to, not terrified of. And the world will be terrified of it because it's a battle cry. When he calls us home, it's a battle cry against the world at that point. It's the Lord's declaring war on earth, on a Christ-rejecting world at that point, and calling his ambassadors, us, Home, and that's all in 1 Thessalonians 5 uh, 4 and 5. But it's where the Lord meets Moses and gives everyone the law and the Ten Commandments. And God spoke um, all of it at once and then wrote the commandments on tablets twice. So remember, first he speaks it, then he writes it on tablets with Moses with the very finger of God. And you have to think that that's probably Jesus writing that with him. It also reminds me of when Jesus comes to the woman who, who the Israelites are surrounding in the New Testament, and they want to stone her, and he doesn't say anything. He just comes and bends down and starts to write in the dirt with his finger. He probably was writing on the foundation of a building, actually, not just in dirt. And when he was writing in that concrete, the, the foundation, the stone of it, his finger was writing in the stone, just like on Sinai. And so that's one of the reasons why it shook them so bad, was he, he was showing them, I am God. You can't do this. You can't write in this stone, but I can. And then, of course, they all dispatch, and he looks at the, the woman and says, where are your accusers? And that very question he has for all of us as well, because the enemy wants to accuse us of a lot of things. You know, if you've done anything in your life that the enemy brings up, it's an, it's an accusation, because Satan, according to Revelation 12 and 13, is an accuser of the brethren. And so that doctrine comes from Satan. So don't, don't let the enemy accuse you in your life. But remember then, Moses comes down. He drops the tablets. Because that's symbolizing our inability to carry the law and the Ten Commandments. It has a lot of other deep meanings. But one of them very on the very surface is we can't bear that. So he's carrying it. Down he sees the sin of the people and drops them, because we we will all fail if we try to carry the law, if we try to live by the law, we will fail. So then he goes back up and gets them again. All now all of this is in Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, and etc. So you can track down those stories. What I wanted to look at specifically was Deuteronomy 4, 10 through 14 here, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb. That's another name for Sinai. When the Lord said unto me, gather me the people together and I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth and that they may touch and teach their children. And ye came near and stood under the mountain and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven. So this was the same pillar of fire that led them in the wilderness. Not just, it wasn't just burning on top the pillar of fire went from the top of the mountain all the way up through outer space into heaven. It was that kind of pillar. So this was not, a, this was not just a, a little thorn bush burning like what Moses saw. This was the presence of God sitting down on that mountain to speak with his people in a pillar of fire. And the reason, look what he says there in verse 10, that they may learn to fear me, all the days that they shall live upon the earth. Now, if you've never really done a deep dive study on the fear of God, you need to get into it and understand this is not just a reverential fear. It's, it's a fear of, this is, like Jesus said, fear the one that can cast, when you die, can cast you into hell, right? It's a fear, it's a real fear. It's a fear of, I need to be in his presence and humble myself and be a servant to him um, because if I'm not in Christ, some really bad things can happen, To me, And that's legitimate, that um, he is not going to force himself on anyone. And ultimately, those that don't accept him, that don't get saved at the end of their lives, there's a place prepared for them that they don't have to have anything to do with him forever. And it's heartbreaking, and he is heartbroken by it. But the fear of the Lord is real. And and ye came near and stood under the mountain. And the mountain burned with fire into the midst of heaven with darkness, clouds, And thick darkness, and the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. Only ye heard a voice. Now that's important. They couldn't look on God Himself. Remember when Moses is hidden, and God says, "Okay, I'll walk by you, but I'll cover your face until I walk past you, and then you can see the backside of me, but you can't see my face unless you die." And Jesus talks about that in the New Testament. How no no one can look upon God and live. No man, no flesh. Praise God that our spirit can, when we're in heaven, we'll be able to, to be in his presence and look on him. But that's, that's how holy he is, that your flesh can't even look at him. He's so holy. I, I don't know. We'll probably spend an eternity trying to figure out what that really means. But, and the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Okay, but you saw no similitude. Only ye he heard a voice, and he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments. So when you read the Word of God, too, in the Old Testament, just keep in mind statutes, judgments, law, commandments, those are not synonymous. Those are all different things. They're all in the Word of God, but the ten commandments are different than statutes, and they're different than judgments. And it's, he's basically going through the entire counsel of his word from the Torah. Okay, so look at, this was interesting to me, thick clouds and darkness. So he comes down the first time on Mount Sinai in thick clouds and darkness. That's exactly how Jesus returns the second time. And you'll find this a lot in the Bible, but in Psalms 97 is one of my favorite references. The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world, and the earth saw and trembled. None of this sounds like when Jesus was here the first time, walking around, because it wasn't. This is when he comes back in Revelation 19, and we are with him. And he goes to war against his enemies. and It's not even a war. He speaks and they, they dissolve <laughs> standing there surrounding Jerusalem, according to Zechariah 14. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. Micah covers this also, how the hills and the mountains just melt away when he walks back on the earth in judgment. And he brings us with him to set up the kingdom. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. So thick clouds and darkness when he comes back. So the first time in thick clouds and darkness was to give boundaries of judgment. Okay, think about that way. The second time in thick clouds and darkness is to enact that judgment. So he's giving boundaries for this is what you need to do to be in my presence and to live. And the second time, he's actually coming back to enact that judgment. Okay, the Hebrew word for Sinai means thorn. And it's interesting, just look at the first three letters of Sinai, it's Sin. And sin is a thorn in our side, all through the Bible. Sin is something that is is constantly a thorn in our side. And the word comes from the parent root, sinun, also meaning thorn. Another word derived from the parent root is is sineh, meaning thorn bush. Okay, so the bush that Moses saw burning in Exodus 3.2 is a sinna. It's a burning thorn bush. So Mount Sinai is also called Mount Horab from Exodus 3.1. So it's likely that where Moses saw the burning bush is the same place where he came back to after the Exodus event that God rains down in fire to meet him. Same spot. Uh, the Hebrew word comes from the root harav, meaning to lay waste, be dried up, as well as to fight. So the words Sinai and Harab are synonymous as a dry wasteland is often filled with thorn bushes. Okay, if you've ever seen videos of going through Saudi Arabia, you would see it's, it is a wasteland. It's just there's these random thorn bushes and there's these tumbleweeds and things that go across. It is, it is barren. Um, the closest thing I think I've ever seen in, in the United States to it is maybe... Maybe West Texas, as you approach like the New Mexico border, uh, it's it kind of kind of looks like that. So, okay, moving on here. When you go, when you look at this word, also, can you move forward, Brent? One, thank you. Okay, what, there's a connection here between the Garden of Eden and Sinai. So when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of God, remember God places a flaming sword at its entrance. Remember that to guard the way, to get back to it. Now, I've often wondered, what, what is this flaming sword? It could be, it could be some kind of technology. Um, it could be lava. It could be all kinds of things. It could be a pillar of fire, um, just like what came down in Mount Sinai. And so think about this. When the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for sword is harav, and hareb, a sword or sharp, comes from that same root of harav, to fight and make waste, as the word haror of a wasteland, which is also called Sinai. And so, thorn or sharp. The burning thorn bush of Exodus is a picture of the flaming sword in Genesis, okay, of, of our inability to get to God until we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So, Adam and Eve fell, they were kicked out of the garden, their place there will be restored once Jesus sets up the kingdom. But is it possible, too, that the burning bush and the flaming sword are one and the same thing in terms of locality, um, in terms of geographic location, the exit to the garden, I mean, the entrance to it? Because now we know from Genesis the Garden of Eden has a, a split of those four rivers. So it's somewhere in Israel. It's probably also interdimensional, so don't Spending time on Google Maps trying to find it—it's probably, it's probably on the other side of the dimensional veil. Once you get into Jerusalem, but it's going to be there somewhere. But the entrance to it might be around Sinai, which I thought was kind of interesting based on all of that. Now, of course, please, um, Acts 17:11 applies, so you got to search the scriptures and see for yourself. But moving on here in verse 20, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart, like a spear or an arrow. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And that word exceedingly, it's not just, oh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm pretty afraid. It's I am terrified. I was trembling and broken and could not move. I was fearing so much. It's whatever the greatest fear is you've ever had in your life, it's that on steroids, you know, exponentially. So he was terrified at the presence of the Lord as recounted in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 9, verse 19. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. See, Moses thought God had had enough, and he was coming down just to wipe them out in the fire and the thundering and the darkness, because Moses kind of saw a lot of that in Egypt. He saw fire. He saw darkness. He saw hailstones and thunderings, and he saw all of that. So here he is. You know, they've been ushered out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They're in the Saudi Arabia Peninsula somewhere on Sinai, and all of a sudden, here it comes again. So you can imagine he's thinking, oh boy, we, we messed up. We did something. Because uh, God's treating us the same way as, as the Egyptians. But really it just was his presence coming down to give them his word. The law was inaugurated under the context of total fear. So keep that in mind. Remember, there is no life in the law. Nowhere in the law does God say, this is how you get saved. Everywhere in the law is... Do this, don't do this. There was no life in it. There was no, it it was a boundary by which you had to enact to try to be in God's presence, which obviously, as we all know from reading the Bible now, all these years later, it's impossible. You can't get to God by following the law. They couldn't do it, and we can't either. But it had nothing to do with their salvation. I want you to keep that in mind, that Abraham was saved and justified by faith. Just like us today, all through the Bible, everyone that is saved is saved by faith. It's just that during the law, they had to live a certain way after they were saved to be in his presence because we didn't have the blood yet. And so it's a picture of the need for Jesus's redemption. The law points us to the need for a savior. It doesn't save us. Jesus does. So, but it was inaugurated under total terror, so keep that in mind. And God's, God is saying back then, um, that in Hebrews here, he does not want the, the Christians in that day, the Jewish people, because at this time, when Hebrews was written, the temple's still standing. So he's pleading with them, don't return to Sinai. You can still do these sacrifices and things, but that's not what I have for you anymore. I've died for you, I need you to come into my presence now and press on, to Mount Zion. Don't return to Sinai. And they're returning, if you go back to Sinai, you're essentially returning to a place of death and condemnation. And that's all in 2 Corinthians 3. You can look that up. Okay, in verse 22 here. But ye are come unto Mount Zion or Sion. You'll see it with an S a lot in the Bible. It shows up with an S, I think, nine times in the, in the scripture. I think I've got that next. But, and unto the city, Of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Now, this is interesting. In this one verse, God has a name for that new city, three different names for it Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, when you see this too, the law was delivered by God with angels. And you see this in Deuteronomy 33, verses 2 and 3. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Sur unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. So he delivered the law with an innumerable company of angels around that fiery pillar. But this new city, Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the new city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, you know, all kind of synonymous here. Jesus spoke of this city in John 14. Remember when he was preparing to leave, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and bring you so that where I am, you may be forever, not just temporarily, not for a day, not for just a thousand years, forever. And that's his promise to us. And there's a pattern there too, because he says, I must leave so that the comforter can come. The comforter being the Holy Spirit, that if you're saved, indwells you permanently. The same is true for him to return to the earth. He's got to remove the comforter. He's got to take the Holy Spirit out of the way. See, there is something unique about Jesus's presence on the earth that he couldn't give the Holy Spirit yet then he leaves. He must leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. Well, the Holy Spirit's got to leave so he can come back. And that's, what, that's one of the many reasons why the church has to be removed in order for the tribulation to start. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble, not the time of the church's trouble. And I've, I've made this joke before, but God's not a wife beater. <laughs> so he, he wants to take his wife out of the way, right, before he goes into war with the earth. And he has, he has something so great for us. And that same voice of a trumpet that, that he was speaking to, to the children of Israel is the same voice that we have to be looking for today from First Thessalonians. With the sound of a trump, he will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in the air, and so we shall forever be with the Lord. And that city that he's been preparing for us for almost 2,000 years is the forever eternal home of the redeemed. It is our forever home. You know, I love, I actually, and Randy hates this kind of about me, but I love going to big cities. I just do. I, I think as much as I despise a lot of their politics and things that they do, um, I love walking around Manhattan. I think it's fascinating. You know, it's, it's the financial center of the entire earth. It's just, it's unique. It's just a neat city. Uh, but there is one city that I think everybody will love. And that's this one that Jesus has been preparing because it's, and when you get the dimensions of it, in terms of 1,500 miles long, wide, and high. So it's interdimensional. We know it's also interdimensional from the Bible because it's 1,500 miles high. And so that means that it's, John only got the three dimensions of it, but it's probably multi, at least 10 dimensions, maybe more, that he couldn't get the measurements of but you're going to live in the coolest city that you could ever imagine. And one that Jesus has personally been preparing for you and I for 2,000 years. So think about that. He put the world back together in all of its beauty in six days. And you and I get to live in something forever that he's been working on for 2,000 years. You just imagine the beauty of it. It's just incredible. This is the city that Abraham sought. We covered this like I said, maybe three years ago in Hebrews eleven ten, okay, and that was that was sarcasm. You guys, man, you guys are tough this morning. Okay, Hebrews eleven ten. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Remember, Abraham walked around looking for this new city. He somehow had a promise of it without having the book of Revelation. So he knew about this new city somehow. In Revelation, God describes this as the city of the eternal home in Revelation 21 and 22. We're gonna walk on streets of transparent gold. You know, the buildings are made of precious jewels and stones. The gates are 12 pearls. It's, it's incredible. The foundations will be named after the 12 apostles that, in, that walked around with Jesus that were eyewitnesses. It's the new city that God has in store for us to forever be in his presence. Now, remember in the New Jerusalem, there's no sun because we are with the sun. He is the light of the world. So the sun has gone away. We have no need of it anymore. His light will be so bright, it will forever be light in that city for eternity because of his presence. That's really cool. There's not gonna be a nighttime there, but somehow there are still seasons. I haven't quite figured out how we live in a place in eternity with him that's outside of time, And yet the tree of life produces fruit, uh, different fruit each month in its season. I haven't quite figured out how that's going to work yet. It may be the the people on the new earth are under time, but maybe where we are, it's not. Just a thought. But is Mount Zion the same as Mount Hermon? So think about this. If you're not familiar with Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon is where 200 watcher angels descended in Genesis 6 to rebel against God. And you can find that in all kinds of ancient Hebrew writings uh, from Enoch and others. But I found this kind of interesting in Deuteronomy 4, verse 48. From Aurora, which is by the bank of the river Arnon, even unto Mount Zion, or Sion, which is Hermon. Now, there's a reference to this also, and I forgot to put it in your notes, so just bear with me for a moment. It's in Psalms, um, Psalms 133. And I'm just going to, it's only three verses, so I'm just going to read this real fast. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. So here in Psalms 133, it's plural. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. That's Psalms 133. It's only three verses. But it's amazing how God sets out in Psalms 133. He starts out with how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then he links dwelling together in unity to Mount Hermon and Mount Zion, the mountains of Zion. And I think he's making this reference because he had unity and bre- with brotherhood, the brethren, with the angels that he created. And he loved it. But then they rebelled against him. They came down on the mountains and tried to corrupt the entire human genome in Genesis 6. So Mount Hermon, it could be the initial location of that angelic rebellion against God on the earth because it ultimately will be where Jesus sets up his king on Mount Zion. And so they're trying, you can kind of see the connection then that the angels are trying to take the very, Location, the geographic location that Jesus will rule from for a thousand years on the earth. Sion appears, and we'll look at that in just a second. Sion appears nine times in the Bible. Zion appears 152 times in the Bible. And, And again, from Psalms 133, it's the place that the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. But in Psalms 102, verse 16, when the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. In Psalms 102, verse 21, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. In Psalms 110, verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. In Psalms 132, verse 13, for the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. So he's chosen this place in Israel as where he will dwell forevermore. And again, it could be why the the watcher angels from Daniel and Genesis 6, and you see this throughout the Bible, Jude, 2 Peter, it could be what led them to pick that place as leading the rebellion, trying to take back that ground. Now, when you read Psalms 2, it's actually a dialogue of the Trinity. And Psalms 2, the Lord talks about Zion. So the first four verses are the Holy Spirit, the next two are the Father, then the Son, then the Father again, and then the, it closes with the Holy Spirit. So you, it's almost a pattern, too, of working outward and in. So you have the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. But you get a front row seat to a dialogue with the Trinity in Psalms chapter 2. And it starts off with, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh the lord shall have them in derision so this is the holy spirit talking then the father speaks in speaks up then shall he speak unto them in his wrath so the father speaking of jesus now he shall speak to them in his wrath and vexed them in his sore displeasure, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. See, from the Lord's eyes, it's already happened. This is everything prophetic from God's perspective has taken place. That's why a lot of times he talks about it in the past tense. But I've set my king upon the hill of Zion, and then here's the son. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, so Jesus is, is quoting. He's quoting the Father right there, and then in verse eight, the Father says to the Son, "Ask of me, and I will; sh- I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron; thou shalt dwell shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." And then the Holy Spirit closes in verse ten. Be wise now, therefore, he's speaking to the kings of the earth. O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish out of the way. When, he, when his wrath is kindled, but a little, blessed are they that put their trust in him. So that's really small in the back. So hopefully I got all that right. <laughs> All right, so in verse 23 here, so Psalms 2, he's going to set his king upon the holy hill of Zion. In verse 23 here, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So notice here that God is making a distinction between the church and the Old Testament saints. So we have the church of the firstborn and the spirits of just men made perfect, two different things. Remember, the just men made perfect, those spirits, the Old Testament saints, they get their resurrected body when Jesus steps foot back on, earth, on the earth the second time. And we see that in Job and in Daniel. Remember, Job says, though my, though my body the worms have destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see him, my Savior, my Redeemer, my Messiah, when he stands at that time on the earth. And he's talking about that. So the Old Testament, there's, it's just hinted at twice in Job and Daniel. But the Old Testament saints seem to get their resurrected body when Jesus sets up the millennium, the kingdom. We as the church get our resurrected bodies at the rapture. And that's all in uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, we see that, that in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. And he's talking about the church there. But the word general assembly in the Greek, it means a festive gathering. And I thought this was really neat. You know, gathering for church should be a celebration, right? Every Sunday, the fact that we have the privilege to come here and to study God's word, it should be so celebratory for all of us to gather together. There is no greater place than being with your brothers and sisters in Christ in a big room together. It's just special, the Holy Spirit's there. The presence is there. Everyone's laughing. You know, when, when you're all in Jesus together, it's a special time. And that's how God meant it to be a festive time. You know, and I know it's a lot of times it's hard to get the kids motivated and get them excited. And oh, I don't want to go to church. You know, it's like uh, if you've never seen Trey Kennedy in his middle school Maddox uh, comedy. A bit. Just look that up when you get home on YouTube. It's hilarious. But he does a great impre- impersonation of middle school kids, trying to drag them to church. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, but in any case, it should be a festive gathering, right? It should be a time of celebration. It should be a time, a fun time, where we all just get to relax and just unwind at the end of the week or really to start our new week. So in verse 24 here, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So remember Hebrews 8 went into great detail about how Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Now again, I want to make this very clear. The new covenant is not a new way to get saved. Abraham was justified by faith just like us. He just didn't have the blood of Jesus yet. The new covenant, we are in a new relationship with God because of the blood. The church is unique, and he's the mediator of the Holy Spirit indwelling us permanently and sprinkling his blood on the mercy seat in heaven so that we forever have access with him. We are in a different relationship with him, but our salvation is not different. And you see that all through the Old Testament, um, think about when Joshua and the children of Israel went into Jericho. Remember, Rahab was saved. It was accounted to her by faith also. She was saved. Abraham was saved by faith when he obeyed God and he was going to sacrifice Isaac. You and I are saved by faith in trusting in the Lord Jesus. And so it's just something, you've got to kind of make that distinction. There's not a new way to get saved all of a sudden. There's only one way to get saved. It's just we have a different relationship. Jesus' blood is the only blood that can bring someone into the very presence of God. And we covered that in Hebrews 9. Remember in the Bible, Abel was the first person to offer a blood sacrifice. And which is one of the reasons God references that event in this verse. And how did Abel know? You know, how did Abel know what to sacrifice? The law wasn't written there's nowhere that we we knew at that time what a clean or unclean animal was but yet Noah knew he took 7 of the clean animals on the ark and 2 I'm sorry 7 of the unclean 2 of the clean and that distinction is all the way back at the beginning of the Bible if you're sensitive to it it just we don't see it show up until Leviticus for some reason okay the children of Israel did not want to hear from God directly God wanted to come down to meet his people, give his word, strengthen them in their walk, but they were terrified. He was trying to take them and give them his word as a guide to live by to help them get to Mount Zion. So he meets them at Sinai. He wants them to go into the land of promise over the Jordan to a place of his rest to meet them there. And they had this guidebook, right? We too have a guidebook on how to live. In our guidebook, the boundaries in it on how to maintain relationship with God and what our behavior should be like, how we should act. But they were terrified. They didn't really like what God had to say at that time. And as a result, they really wanted a commentary or an interpreter or another man's translation of what God said. Because look what they say in Exodus 20, verse 19. They said unto Moses speak thou with us and we will hear but let not god speak with us lest we die. They really didn't want to hear from god directly from that point on. They from that point on it is abysmal failure for the children of Israel because they wanted someone else to give it to them. When god all along really wanted to be the one to sit with them and teach them and guide them and speak to them. And and I don't, I haven't prayed about this enough. I'll just throw this out there for you guys. I'm still searching, asking the Lord about it. But in Exodus 19, God, you can almost hear that God is frustrated that they won't come to the mountain to meet him. Because he says, after I blow the trumpet, then sanctify the people and come up to me. And before that, remember, then Moses, of course, starts to argue, God, you said we couldn't touch the mountain. And He say, no, I said, before the trumpet, you couldn't touch the mountain. After the trumpet, I'm telling you, to come here into my presence. And so I, I don't really know if God intended for them to come up to the mountain or not, but look at that. In Exodus 19, there's a hint of it. So it's the same trap for us as Christians today, though. That's the point for all of us. It's the same trap. God is so desperate to speak into your life personally. And I know I, I beat this to, I don't know, not to death, to life. I beat this to life. I beat this to life every single week up here, but he is, he is so desperate for you and I to get into his word and to study it ourselves because it's a personal relationship. It's what you need out of God's word is totally different than what I need or my children need or what Mason needs or somebody else needs. You have to do it on your own to see what you need. And God is the only one that knows the intents and the heart of thoughts of the heart and what you need. Nobody else does. And so, not that he can't use other people in your life. Please do not misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, though, you've got to give him a place first. You have to give him preeminence in your life to speak into it directly and let him guide that so that you're brought to people. He may give someone a word for you. He may speak through someone to your life. He may have... A message on a podcast or something that you need to hear in that moment. But you may never find it if you don't give him a place first and get into his word and open the word yourself and just study it verse by verse. Just read it and bathe in it. And that washing of the water of the word in the New Testament, that washing is not a simple, it's not like a shower. It's not just a a washing. In the Greek, it means dipping repeatedly. It's like staying in a bath for all your life, <laughs> and, and it's something that you've got to stay there in God's presence, but they didn't want that, and that's the same issue with so many Christians today that they don't want to take the time to hear directly from God, and they'd rather, it's, it's kind of like pressing that Staples easy button, right, that I want to pick up this podcast or a book or a commentary or something, and that's not what God has for you. He may have that eventually for you, but he wants to, he wants to be first. So give him, that, give him that place. Okay, so what do we do with all of this? Well, I want to cover these verses one more time as we close here. 1 Thessalonians 5, some direction for us, you know, as an application for us today to listen to God's word. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, You know, look around the room. These are those that labor among you in community with one another, helping each other, coming alongside each other, being there if if you've got a need in your family or someone that's sick or something that you need prayer for. These are people that are laboring among you. And so look to them and lean on them. You know, we're not in this alone. To know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. We should all be at peace with one another. And when, you are, when you're assuming the best of those and you're praying for them, it's really hard to uh, have any bitterness or pick up an offense at someone when you're on your knees praying for them. And so pray for one another. Now we exhort you, brethren, Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, including your children. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. In verse 17, my wife often walks through a store and she's still talking to the Lord, and people look at her like she's, she's crazy sometimes, but she's just praying constantly. In everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Nothing quenches the spirit more than bitterness, backbiting, uh, looking more highly upon yourself than you ought, not being in the word of God, not praying continually. There's a lot for us to do. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, how do you be preserved blameless until he brings us home? Well, number one is simply just having a a heart of repentance. I mean, you know when when you're out of line or not, not walking faithfully with him or if something happens that, that you let bury into your heart. you know, having a heart of repentance. It's not saying you're blameless means you don't ever sin. Blameless means you turn to the one that can take care of it when you do. And that's why he saw David as perfect. I mean, if there's anybody in the Bible that God speaks more highly of than David, it's hard to find. But yet here's a guy that ended his life committing adultery and murdering the husband of the wife that he cheated on and <laughs> cheated with. And yet in all of that, what did David do? He sought the Lord out of it. He always had a heart towards God. He wasn't perfect, but the model is he had a heart of running toward perfection. And so that's the call for all of us. And then when you have that heart, God will continually strengthen you and keep you out of those things. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. I love, I love how he closes that in verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Okay. Okay. Greet all brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of, all of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with you. Amen. And I just I kept these verses in there as a reminder from last week that you and I have a call of forgiveness to anyone in your life that has wronged you. You have a call to forgive them, and don't forget what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Verses 34 and 35. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespass. The Lord did not use the word unforgiveness if you forgive not. So you've got to have a heart of forgiveness. And the Lord means that seriously, that you and I are to uproot any bitterness forgive them, and we hear that by being obedient to his word and listening to what he has to say as difficult as it may be, just like the children of Israel from Sinai. Okay, we don't want to forsake our inheritance, and the longer we stay in God's word, the closer and closer we will draw to him. So remember in the Bible, these five crowns, crown of life, crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown imperishable, crown of rejoicing. And each of those, when you match those verses, is tied to something different you do in your life. Okay, rewards for the overcomer. There's eight of them in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three. "To eat of the tree of life in Revelation 2:7, "Not heard of the second death in Revelation 2:11. The hidden manna, white stone in a new name in Revelation 2:17. At Bible study on Friday, we kind of did a deep dive study on manna, the bread of life. And I'll just give you one tidbit, because we're going to talk about it at church at some point. But from Numbers chapter 9, verse 11, the manna had to fall on the dew on the ground. The dew fell on the ground, the manna fell on the dew when they were in the wilderness. And God symbolizing the manna, the bread of life, is Jesus, right? He is the word. The word is life and became flesh. He, and he even quoted in John, he said, I am the bread of life. And it's important to note that pattern, that The dew, the water, the Holy Spirit had to fall on the dirt, dirt representing us, right? We are made from the dust of the earth. The water had to fall on it, then the bread of life fell on the water. Well, what is the water? The Holy Spirit, right? All through the Bible, the water represents the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. That Holy Spirit has to indwell us, and then we let the bread of life fall on it, the word of God continually as our source of life and provision because if we were to press on to all of these things the word has to fall on our spirit man not our flesh because the flesh cannot understand it it's not a logical exercise it's a spiritual one and so we have to let the spirit take over and that's what is all modeled there with the bread of life from numbers but these that's a gift for us that manna that they that the children of Israel roamed around the wilderness, that manna they partook in, that they got to partake in, is the same that we will in heaven. And so it's just incredible. It's incredible. We get to have that gift in a white stone, power over the nations, white raiment, a pillar and a new name in Revelation three twelve, sitting with Christ on his throne in Revelation 3, verse 21, and to inherit all things. Now, to do all of this, you've got to stay in his word and become an overcomer, remain loyal to God in Revelation 2. Don't lose your first love like the church at Ephesus. Overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful in Revelation 2:8 through 11. To be spiritually zealous for the Lord in Revelation 2:19. To not deny Jesus in Revelation 3:8 and 10. Not to defile your garments in Revelation 3:4. To keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3:10. And when you do all of that and you're in the Word of God, you will, you will quickly realize how short our time really is and how quickly things are accelerating. It's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to go through the, the messages on prophecy because when you really look at what's going on in the world and how fast it is accelerating exponentially, I think you'll be shocked at everything that's going on out there and how it aligns with God's Word. So we've got to watch, therefore. And, and what I love from... All through the Bible, through the New Testament, Jesus said so much, watch, watch, watch. Be watchful, be watching. Keep your eyes up, look toward me. In Mark 13, 37, what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. So we as his people, we've gotta be watchful. And then if you don't, if you don't know Jesus and you're, you found us or you're watching this online later or, or listening to this podcast, it's really simple. It's Romans ten nine. Romans 10, nine that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It is so simple. God does not want anyone to perish, but for all to come to everlasting life from 2 Peter 3. And so please give your heart to Jesus. If you don't know him as savior, if you don't know him as Messiah, it is so simple The book of James says there's the power of life and death in the tongue and that's how simple it is to accept him. You have to use your tongue and you confess that he is Lord and you'll be saved forevermore. Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray that if there is anybody out there that does not know you, that they give their life to you right now. Lord, we thank you for all that we have. God, we love you. We thank you that we have the promise of a resurrected body and a new life in you. Please be with us as we go out in this day. Give us the strength to press on toward you and to take away these lessons of, tra- of traveling from Sinai to Zion. Lord, let us all f- make our way there and find our place and rest with you by submitting our lives to you and giving it all over to you. We love you, God, in your mighty and precious name we pray, King Jesus, amen.